0: Chuck Swindle tells the story of a spider who built a spider web. Beautiful web in an old house. He kept it clean and shiny so that the flies would patronise it. Uh, And whenever he got a customer along to his his web, he would clean up very quickly so that none, none of the other flies would be suspicious. Then one day, a fairly intelligent fly came buzzing by the clean spider web. An old man spider called out, Come in, sit for a while. Uh, But the fairly intelligent fly said, No way, I don't see any other flies in your house. I'm not coming anywhere near you, fella. And he continued on his way. Well, a little bit later on, this fly saw on the floor below him a large crowd of flies dancing on a brown piece of paper. And he was delighted. He's not afraid if lots of flies were doing it. So he came in for a landing. And... um, just before he landed, a bee zoomed by. Don't, don't land there, stupid. That's fly paper. But the fairly intelligent fly shouted back, don't be silly. Those flies are dancing. There's a big crowd there. Everybody's doing it. That, that many flies can't be wrong. Well, you know what happened. He came in, he landed, got stuck, danced for a while, and died. What does it profit a fly? or a person, if he escapes the web only to end up in the glue. Today, I have to talk to you about one of the most difficult and yet important topics that a Christian pastor ever has to teach on, and that is, how do you choose a church? And, And how do you know if a Christian leader is leading a church deeper into God or diverting them off the path of life? How can you tell a good teacher from a bad teacher or a good prophet from a bad prophet? And the reason I find this one of the most difficult messages to teach on is not because it's difficult to understand. It's actually very easy to understand. Um, The difficulty is because it really calls into question and forces us to put under the microscope every Christian leader. to to look at their character, what they teach, their track record, their motivation for what they do. And this is something I don't like doing. Um, But Jesus commanded it. And he didn't only command it of me, he commanded it of you. And you have to put me under the microscope. And you have to ask yourself the question, is what Michael is teaching me, is that right or is it wrong? Um, Is it of God or is he leading us astray? We all have to be discerning. Now, I know Jesus said, do not judge lest you also be judged, but he also said, watch out for false prophets. Be aware of them. Be alert. He told us to be discerning of the path that we are on, the path that we are taking. And he also told us that his path would often be very lonely because only a few would travel it. None of us like to think badly of Christian leaders. We've been taught to respect them, and that's right, we should. Uh, We've always been taught to give everybody a fair go, don't judge, don't criticise, don't rock the boat, but Jesus commands us to be discerning and to watch out for those who might be leading us astray and to be very careful which path we choose to follow. And the path that everybody else chooses Well, more often than not, that is the road to destruction, while the road to life, well, very few follow that one. So looking at this passage, most times I've heard it preached on, it's been ended at verse 14. Now, just to set the scene before we start, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. This is the greatest sermon ever preached. And and there's been so much great teaching, all from Jesus, up on that mountainside, as he's talked to us about um, all sorts of things, from our relationship with God to our relationship with one another, our relationship between husbands and wives, um, the the way that we shouldn't, you know, we should love others. Beautiful teaching, but then it seems to end with something a bit bit harsh and judgmental. Um, But it's important that we look at this. And that's where we're up to now. We're almost at the end of the the Sermon on the Mount. But most times I've heard this preached on, people finish the reading at verse 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And so it becomes a passage on evangelism. There are two roads. There is this highway uh, loaded with people of the world on their way to hell. But Jesus Christ calls us to enter through the narrow gate to put our faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, that's the narrow road. And that's fair enough. That's, that's a good lesson to learn from what Jesus said. Don't go following people of the, of the world. Enter through the gate, become a Christian and follow Jesus Christ. That's a good lesson. But when you read it in its context, as Jesus delivered it to his disciples, you realise that we've actually missed out on something pretty important. Jesus continues on then to warn his disciples about false prophets. There are people who on the outside seem really good, but on the inside, they're not God's servants. Now, there are two gates... And there are two roads. One gate leads to the wide easy path and lots of people take that gate. The other gate leads to a narrow hard path and only a few take that one. And the danger, the warning, is which gate have you chosen and which path are you trying to follow? Are you on the right path? Are you travelling with Christ or are you getting diverted onto the more easy, more popular path, thinking that you're with Christ but you're actually following something very different to his way? There are false prophets aplenty perverting the way of life, trying to coax you into a different path, the easier path, the more enjoyable path, the more popular path, the path of least resistance. Somebody once said, following the path of least resistance is what makes rivers and men crooked. And that's pretty true, isn't it? And even in our Christian life, there is always the temptation to follow the path of least resistance. I know I'm tempted (coughs) to. This is the easier way. This This is the path I'm going to take. If one Bible teacher teaches a hard road and another Bible teacher teaches an easier, more appealing road, I can tell you now which one's going to be the more popular. So what is a false prophet? Well, for the purposes today, I'm I'm going to group together false prophets and false teachers. Um, They're pretty much the same thing. Satan will do anything that he can to disrupt the mission of God and to corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of those ways is through false prophets and false teachers. These are people who either knowingly or unknowingly divert the people of God from doing God's will. They divert people from the truth. They can divert a church from God's purposes for that church. They can divert Christians from from becoming the new creations that God wants them to be where's the danger, I might hear you ask? Surely false prophets are rare, aren't they? And surely we can pick them out easy enough. We, we don't need to go looking for a red under every bed or, or go turning over every rock to try and find something that's firstly non-existent, do we? Well, actually, according to what Jesus said, they're not rare. And, and, and if you read through in the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 2 says there will be false teachers among you. What he's saying is expect them. When people have a mission from God, Satan will try to disrupt that mission. And one of his easiest ways is through false teachers. It is regular. It is common for false teachers to infiltrate a church. And often the churches that they target will generally be the churches that are actively serving God. There's not much point in infiltrating a church that's already dead. Um, Matthew 24 says, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Why then do we think that it's rare when the Bible tells us that it's common? The best trick that the devil has up his sleeve, the best trick he's always had is to convince people that he doesn't exist. And it's the same with false prophets. They are so effective in their deception of the church throughout the ages because Christians are not alert in watching out for them. So how easy are they to identify? Well, the most dangerous false prophets are actually very hard to tell. Um, A false prophet wouldn't be dangerous if he or she were easy to identify. I got got a little text the other day. Someone sent me a little daily devotion and and I think it might have actually been on this same passage and it was a warning about false prophets. And the example that it gave was was this chap somewhere or other who claims to be Jesus and and he's got all these people following after him. They actually believe it. Now, that sort of stuff does happen. That does happen. But if I was to say to you guys today, by the way, crew, I'm, I'm Jesus and I've come back a little bit early. And um, I want you all to just give me a bit of homage and your money, and yep, your wife will be nice too, and whatever else I want. Yep. I think you'd very quickly work out that, that there was something not right about me, wouldn't you? you? Yeah? Yeah? Some false prophets are easy to recognise, but they're not the biggest danger. I've got a little little video clip here. Hey? Mildew. Mildew the wolf. Jesus referred to false prophets as wolves in sheep's clothing. Now this is very important. They look good. Uh, They appear as innocent sheep. They, They look like good, sound Christians. They sound like Christians. They blend in with the flock. Acts chapter 20 says that even locals... Can rise up to become false preachers. Now, you wouldn't suspect a local, would you? Like, imagine somebody that you've been in the church with for years, you would have had them over for lunch and they've had you over for lunch. You've done things together, you've picnicked, you've you've worshipped together for years, but then they have the opportunity to rise up into leadership and um, they start to lead the rest of the church astray. They are very hard to identify. They may even demonstrate the power of God, it says. Amazing things might be appearing to be happening, numbers exploding, excitement generating, maybe even miracles. They might even prophesy in Jesus' name, drive out demons in Jesus' name. But that's all part of their cover, that's all part of their, peer, their appeal, and that's why they are so dangerous. There are many of them, and they are hard to identify, but only if we're not looking out for them. And this is where their danger lies. 2 Peter 2 says that they secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, how do you do that? What what that means is that most of what they'll say will be very good. But every now and then they'll just slip something in that is a lie. And if you're not vigilant, you'll accept it along with everything else. And it is these lies getting slipped in that are the danger and if it's someone you respect um, and you've written, they've given you teaching you respect it becomes very hard to question the, the other teaching that, that they're telling you and so many people accept false prophets and one of the reasons that they often accept them is because they are men pleasers in fact I think that's probably their greatest appeal they are men pleasers they're likely to tell you exactly what you want to hear They'll give you the confirmation you're looking for. They'll give you the experience you're craving to have. They'll pump you up but rarely correct you. They'll make you feel really good about yourself and give you a real sense of self-importance and self-value. They'll be forever putting on positive spin on every occurrence in the church. They'll constantly claim every good thing that happens within the church as as a miracle of God or a sign of God's blessing and thus people begin to conclude that it's a sign of God's blessing on their ministry, Uh, they'll turn your focus towards yourself and towards your experience and to how Christ is meeting your needs. They'll tell you what you want to hear and they'll give you what you want to experience. Often, false prophets are very talented sorts of people They might be musicians or entertainers, speakers or academics, people who have a way of working a crowd, people who have a way to get you to follow along after them. They might be leaders. Their teaching will often appeal to your fleshly nature. Now, something that I know is that even though I'm a Christian, stuff keeps appealing to my fleshly nature and I've got to keep battling my fleshly nature. 2 Peter 2 says that many will follow after their shameful ways or their licentious ways or their sensual ways. What that means is that what they teach and what they do will feel nicer. It'll be easier. It'll be more appealing to the flesh. It'll be less challenging. It'll be more accommodating of your chosen lifestyle. And so many people follow their ways. Now, I've just pulled three examples out here to give you, just three simple examples. We live in the era of the megachurch. There are a lot of churches scattered throughout the world with thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of members, and there's nothing wrong with a megachurch. It's actually a fantastic feeling to be together in a huge church with all of these Christians all together, all praising God. There's nothing wrong with a megachurch provided that what they're teaching is the, is the word of God and is the true gospel. But a very high percentage of, of megachurches preach what is called the prosperity doctrine. You've probably heard of that. It's where God, that the message might be, God wants you to be rich. God wants you to bless you. You know, you give, he'll bless you ten times, a hundred times over. You give, you give... $100 to, to, to this church and, and God will give you a 1000 back in return. It's, it's a blatant appeal to the flesh. And sadly, people flock to these churches where they get all sorts of teaching on how to be successful, how to get their finances in order, how to get up on top of life. This sort of stuff appeals to the flesh. It's all good advice for living, but it's not the gospel. And, and many fall for it hook, line, and sinker. And generally, these are the biggest, fastest growing churches in our Western culture. But it's not only mega churches. You find the prosperity doctrine right throughout the countryside. You'll find churches even sprinkled throughout country Queensland who teach this prosperity doctrine, this appeal to the flesh. It is prominent on Christian radio. It is prominent on Christian television that there are well-known teachers on, on all these things being beamed to all parts of the world sharing this prosperity doctrine. And it's very appealing, but it's not the gospel. A second example that sometimes can appeal to us good evangelical types. For me and for many Christians, the greatest blessing and the greatest excitement I can see is to see new converts for Christ. Anyone want to say amen to that? Amen to that, yeah? Um, But sometimes the message that is preached is not the gospel. And the message that people respond to is not the gospel. Sometimes a message might be preached, right, if your life's a mess, come to Jesus and he's going to fix it all right up. And that's it. That's not the gospel. And people make a decision for Christ that counted in the ranks of converts, but they're not saved. The Bible teaches us that to be saved, we repent, believe, Receive repent of your sins now repentance is a doing word it's something you have to actually do it's not just words I repent okay well what do you repent of how are you repenting of it it's a doing word it's something that we have to demonstrate and then we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that really is also a doing word um, John and I were talking about this last night to have faith in Jesus Christ we talked about the example of, of Blondin walking over the Niagara Falls on the on the type rope And um, he said, do you believe I can do it? And they said, yes, yes, we believe you can do it. Right, I'm going to push a wheelbarrow across. Do you believe I can do it? Yes, yes, we believe you can do that. I'm going to put a man inside that wheelbarrow. Do you believe that I can do that? And we're going to walk across Niagara Falls. Yes, yes, we believe you can do that. Righto, who's going to hop in? And, of course, not so many volunteers, but somebody eventually did. Now, that is faith. That is believing in Blondin was hopping into that wheelbarrow. And to believe in Jesus Christ is to entrust him with everything. That's, that's to believe in Jesus. So there are many empty conversions that are not conversions at all, which can generate excitement in us, but it's all just smoke and mirrors. Another example, which is what I call the me church, and this teaching is growing pretty fast, and that's where it's all about me. It tends to attract the younger generation, my, my, my age and younger. Um, did you see what I did there? You saw what I did there? I, I put me in the, in the younger generation. I, I did that pretty well. Uh, and and, and the, we are called the me generation because generally, from my age and younger, it's all about, it's all about us. It's all about me. Um, I have everything geared to suit me. And that goes the same for church. But it's not only the younger folk, there are also many more mature Christians who love the Me Church, either because A, they're excited to see the younger folk there, or B, because they despise authority. And the Me Church doesn't doesn't submit much to authority um, and doesn't promote much authority, unless, of course, to the main pastor. But you might recognise some of the teaching. For instance, when it comes to serving God, really the message is if you don't feel like doing it, don't do it. Now, of course, they don't phrase it anywhere near as crass as that. It it gets spiritualised to give it some appearance of godly teaching and, and it's a mixture of truth and lies and that's what makes it hard to tell and that's what makes it dangerous. So, the teaching might go something like this. God has given each of us spiritual gifts, which is true. And God has given each of us passions and desires. That's less true because I know a lot of my passions and desires haven't come from God. Um, So it's sometimes true. Um, And some of us have been trying to function outside of the calling of God. Now that is true. Some of us have, sometimes. If God hasn't put a passion for something in your heart, why are you trying to do it? You're trying to work outside of God's calling. Now that's often not true. But there will be other things that, that God has put a passion in your heart about and those passions are the passions of God and you should follow those. Now that's very often not true as well. It can sound all very good, reasonable and spiritual and it really appeals to the me generation because on the surface it looks good, on the surface it looks spiritual but only some of it is true. And that's what makes it dangerous. What is that that is untrue? Well, if you render it down, basically it's an appeal to my flesh. Do what you enjoy doing. If you don't enjoy doing it, obviously God's not asking you to do it. If you don't have a passion for it, obviously God's not calling you to that. That's just simply not true. It assumes that God will only call us to what we enjoy or God will only call us to what we have a passion for. And if I don't want to do it, well, God obviously hasn't called me to serve him in that way. But when God gives us a direction, we have a choice. We either obey or we disobey. I I don't get to choose, well, I'm not actually passionate about that, so therefore God's not calling me to it. In fact... um, Many of the prophets were called to do things they didn't want to do, uh, called to things they didn't have a passion about. Think about poor old Jonah. right? Go go to Nineveh. Where did Jonah go? Tarshish. Um, But God took him there kicking and screaming in the belly of a whale. Big fish. Sorry, not whale, big fish. Um, And many of the prophets were, were called to do things that they didn't want to do. Jesus himself did not want to go to the cross. He prayed with tears in his eyes, Father, if there's any other way, any other way, let's do it that way. But even so, I'm willing. I'm willing to do your will. Who here is passionate about martyrdom? Anyone passionate about that? Keen for that one? And yet God calls Christians all over the world to be martyrs for him. Um, who has a yearning to be persecuted? None of us. God calls us to obedience, not to, what we're, not to what appeals to me, because what appeals to me is way too often an appeal to the flesh. You might be more spiritual than me, um, but for me, that's the case. Way too often, what appeals to me is an appeal to the flesh. Why would Jesus have told us that his road was the hard road if, if it was just everything I enjoyed or if it was just everything I was passionate about. That sounds a lot like the wide easy road to me. So there's just a few examples and, and we could talk about all sorts of examples all morning um, but I think we'd better move on. So why do false prophets attract so many followers? People who maybe once were... were sound followers of Jesus Christ. Well, we've already noticed that, that what they teach is an appeal to the flesh. They are men-pleasers. Uh, they're likely to tell you what you want to hear, give you what you want to see. 2 Peter 2 says they exploit you with stories that are not true. False prophets have great stories. I know, like, They'll be able to have a story to illustrate every point and you'll be left going wow, this person's had so many amazing experiences in their life, so many amazing things that God has done in their life. and But the problem is, they're not true. They're lies. They're either never happened or they've been embellished so much that um, that it's a lie. I remember when I was growing up, there was a, cassette that everybody could buy it was Mike Wannocky has anyone ever heard of Mike Wannocky he, he, he had a testimony and, and he was, used to be this satanic high priest and, but he became a Christian he had this and he was a comedian as well very entertaining very great story you know what it wasn't true years later he was exposed as a fraud and it just wasn't true Jeremiah eight says, "They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace." Now, to me, that sounds like spin doctoring. It's not—it's not as bad as you think. You know? you know, you might hear this about such and such, but no, it's not that bad. Peace, everybody. It's all okay. Now, it's not only the gullible who follow false prophets. They'll often have very charismatic personality. And it's not only a few folk will be deceived. Remember Jesus said wide is the road and many follow down that, down the easy road. But why do they do it? What's their motivation? Uh 2 Peter 2 gives us one reason, greed. And that can be the case. There are some very big churches and, and leaders of those churches are on some very big paychecks. But that can't be the only reason why. Because it certainly wouldn't explain why every little tin pot church is open to attack from false prophets. Of course, material gain of of other kinds can always be a motivation. But Acts chapter 20 reveals another reason. They do it to draw disciples away after themselves. You see, what they enjoy often is power, the power, the influence that they can have over people's lives, the ego trip that they get out of having some people follow after them and lap up everything that they say, power. Now, our passage for today says that no matter how good they look, inwardly they are ferocious wolves, ravenous wolves, which literally means they want to be stealing away. And they steal away the people of God from the mission of God. They divert the mission of a church from its God-given direction, which is usually the tough road and onto a wider, easier, more enjoyable path. So, if there's such a danger, how do we identify a false prophet? Jesus said, by their fruit you'll recognise them. But what are the fruit we're looking for? False teachers will usually point to what they've done, to what they've achieved as their fruit. Uh, It's seen as a blessing of God on their ministry. They'll point to the numbers. They'll point to the excitement that's generating in a church. They'll point to decisions for Christ, maybe even baptisms. Jesus said that they'll point to miracles, to prophecies even. They might even drive out demons in Jesus' name. But on the day of judgment, Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I just find that incredible. That some people will have the ability to achieve amazing things in Jesus' name. They have the ability to stir up a church and set it on fire. But they're not of God. Is it any wonder that we get deceived? Achievement is not the fruit that God looks for. Fruit is not excitement, numbers or money. Nor is it a sense of eager expectation. The fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. It's a deeper level of transformation in a person's life fruit is the fruit of one's character and the thing with fruit is it usually takes a long time to grow when we first moved to St George the first r- birthday that Robin had um, in St George which by the way next week's Robin's birthday next Sunday see I remember I remember um, <laughs> and she's still only 31 um, But on her first birthday, Robin Robin loves avocados. She can't eat them anymore. She's now allergic to them. But when we first arrived in St George, she loved avocados. So I bought her an avocado tree for her birthday and we planted it. And the people in the church were really excited. Oh, you're planning on staying a while then? Because I think Aldridge just probably said that to us because they they know that avocados take a while to fruit. I had no idea how long it took. But it grew for a few years before it started to fruit and then we got a couple of years of fruit off it. I guess somebody else will get to enjoy that fruit now. But you know what? People are the same as fruit trees. Sometimes it takes a little while for the fruit to show, but eventually it will. A good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit and it's the same with people. Eventually false prophets will get caught out some people will eventually be able to recognise the fruit that is inside of them. Maybe lies, maybe greed, maybe lust or anger, laziness or violence, uh, self-interest, questionable ethics, foul language or false humility, double-mindedness or faithlessness. They might be two-faced or dishonest. But it might take years for the fruit to be recognised. But until then we have to rely on the gift of discernment. Two weeks ago, I, I shared with, with the folk who were at, where were we two weeks ago? Uh, Begonia and, and Thalon. I shared with the folk there um, something that, about the gift of discernment and so this is going to be a little bit of a repeat for you guys. Some people will identify false prophets far quicker than anybody else. Now, it's not because they're more spiritual nor is it because they're less gullible. They identify false teachers far quicker because of the Holy Spirit gift of discernment. They have a God-given ability to be able to discern sheep from wolves. And I said to these folk, they're like maremmas, if you like, um, who, who keep a watch out on the flock and they can sniff out the wolf. They give warning when somebody who appears to be of God is actually leading people astray. Now, it's very important that the Christian church and particularly the leaders of the church pay attention to these people because God gives spiritual gifts to the church for a reason, but not everybody has the same spiritual gift. And the gift of discernment is given to some people to prevent the whole church from being led astray. Now, as I said at the start... I find it hard to talk on this sort of stuff. But we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount and and Jesus warned his disciples to watch out for for, for wolves in sheep's clothing and I have to do the same. Be vigilant and stay true to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, turning neither to the left or the right. Don't take the popular path the easy road, stay the course, follow Christ, not the crowd. And there is so much good to follow Christ. I don't want anybody to leave here today feeling negativity towards the church or negativity towards towards anybody and go, right, now, now we've got to go out and we've got to seek and destroy. That's not what it's about. What I want you to do and what I want me to do is to fall more and more in love with Jesus Christ. And you know those fruit that we're talking about? I only mention the bad fruit. There's good fruit that we should be encouraging in one another you know, and, and see the good fruit growing in one another, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And there are so many good teachers out there and good prophets. Um, and we should thank God for our leaders. We should pray for our leaders. Um, I think I've gone on long enough.